addresses people's innate concerns. So that's what I do as a behavioral scientist. I look at what are the existing mental models in different demographics. Do they care about animal welfare? Do they care about sustainability? Do they care about their own health? Any one of these arguments can go a long way, but we need to be very careful about how we craft the message and are we actually delivering the right message based on the end recipient? How will they receive it? Because if you try to convince my extended family not to eat uh, the fish that they love that is so embedded into their culture, it's not going to work. But if you start to kind of explain that, hey, our behaviors is resulting in this increasing um, planet warming, which is going to result in an already vulnerable geographic location getting even more inhospitable to live in, that can actually work. So we have to be really smart and careful as a collective in terms of how we craft messaging so as to we actually have the end recipient interpret it as we intend, and then we can begin to predict behavioral outcomes. That's what we have not succeeded in doing, which is why there is such a still an extremely small percentage of those who are consistently plant-based. I would love to see that change. I would love to see that grow. Um, and I, I, I craft the sustainability argument for audiences where that will work, because it's definitely worked with um, communities that are more resistant to changing their diets. But again, if it impacts their actual livelihoods, not being able to live in a location because of their behavioral practices, then that is a way to actually get around that indifference potentially to consuming animal proteins. So that's one. And then a second point I'd like to bring up is the, and this didn't come up in Game Changer so much, um, but there's a lot happening in the cellular agricultural space and cultivated meat. And so for those who are just, we're not going to be, if we can make meat products still in tasty and texture and maybe even better tasting than existing products, then that is a potential um, solution in the toolkit. I don't, I understand the argument against that would be, why would we even bother doing that? I, I appreciate that. But given that there is still such a small percentage of plant-based um, actual diets, then here is another option on the table that is at least moving in the right direction of being more plant exclusive. So that is, I just wanted to share those two points. I'm really curious to see people's thoughts on cultivated meat and where they see the, that market going. It's not scalable just yet, but where it's getting closer. Um, I'm not paid by any of those companies. I'm just very fascinated by that technology. And so that's something that I get excited about because we need all the solutions in our toolkit. We need science, we need technology, and we need sweeping behavioral change. But there's no magic wand here. If everybody went vegan, we would solve the climate crisis. If, um, if we were able to address uh, population, we would be able to solve some of these issues too. But none of those sweeping broad changes are going to happen and in the time frame that we need. So that's why I'm a big proponent for all of the solutions being in our toolkit. And ultimately, we all win. Thanks for letting me share that. Thanks, Sweta. Some uh, great hey, insights. Uh, I'm uh, just going to Carry on, Jeff. Yeah, I'm just going to do. Yeah, I'm just going to do a, a quick room reset. I, I do want to uh, acknowledge uh, everyone on the panel for just. It's it's interesting that you know this conversation always seems to go towards protein, and and then we get into you know plant based meats, and and you know the again. In my view, and, and my intention for this room was to was to try to focus on the middle where we actually agree. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll sort of wrap it up here. And I think to Adam's point, he has he's got a lot of confusion with the general population coming to him, and their takeaway was meat was bad versus 
why not try to focus on what we do know to David Katz's point and actually eat more plants, right? And 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 if if we all focused on singularly that from a human performance standpoint, like just helping people play on the on the right side of their own bell curve, um, helping people level up physiologically. You know, the CDC came out with a report, I believe in February, uh, and it said that 90%, 90% of Americans do not eat enough fruits and vegetables every single day. And if there's anything that separates good from great, it, it's just a daily execution, a daily do of first principles, a daily do of fundamentals. And so we can, we're kind of rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic when we start talking around the margins. And if 90% of Americans aren't getting enough of the layup of dietary patterns, fruits and vegetables, I call it the Switzerland of food groups, then there's a lot of shiny objects out there. There's a lot of ways to get distracted and go down rabbit holes. And we lose track of what we actually all agree on. And so, you know, in, in my work, food functionally, you know, is is that weapon around, you know, where we stumble, bumble, fumble, mumble, and are humbled is in the execution of what we already know to be true. And my hope was that that this, this uh, you know, few hours, you know, catalyzes and, and invigorates and excites more conversation and more rooms. We can't obviously get to everything today. So I do want to be respectful for the next hour and, um, you know, have a Q&A. But I would encourage the audience um, to come and, and try to focus on your questions around the middle, questions around the bullseye, questions around the center, and challenge that. Let's have a debate about that versus getting distracted on the margins. Because in the end, to, to, I think everyone agrees, if we can move the middle of our world to help people eat more plants, the world will win, people will win, and we won't be distracted by the healthy conversations around the margins, which we want to have. But again, not in, not losing sight of what we already know to be true. So with that, I want to hand it back to Kother. Thanks, Jeff. Absolutely right. And um, to your and Sweater's uh, points, we have discussed in the room before the role of um, uh, hybrid meats and uh, lab-grown meats as part of the solution, because actually we, we recognise that there has to be choice for people and um, certainly not asking them to cut out food that they enjoy uh, completely. And so we want to look at all of the options. Um, and um, as Jeff says, we do want to invite the audience. We've got a few audience coming up. Um, please, um, to allow everyone to have uh, a say, keep it to one succinct question. And um, this session is being recorded. So, hey, any, would you like to... Um, say anything before we move to the audience yeah Professor Kothar, um, I actually have to hop um, thanks everyone on the panel who's kind of contributed I think I guess food science and, and nutrition probably gets becomes one of the most complicated or um, I mean even the research is sometimes hard to interpret because the way the studies are done it's hard to isolate components of food and it can get pretty controversial with kind of belief systems and tribes and uh, there's a lot to it. People feel very strongly on it. So um, I think it's definitely always good to have a discussion and um, look at the different angles of, of different um, uh, types of diets and uh, look at it more holistically. So I do believe this is a great platform to do that on Clubhouse. Um, we can have experts, we can have PhDs, uh, we can have doctors, we can have people coming at it from all angles and to kind of have that open discussion. Um, obviously, 
but a lot of it, the research um, shared is, is very valuable. We have a lot of credible people here. But obviously, still, we have differing opinions and differing thoughts on the subject. And I think that's pretty fair. I mean, there's so much about science we don't know and we are learning and we will learn with time. Um, so, yeah, I think this has been great so far. Um, and, yeah, we will bring people on stage um, to kind of um, have discourse with our panelists who are very lucky to have um, some of the, I guess, people working in this human performance space, I like to call it. Um, so, yeah, lucky to be here. I've enjoyed this. Um, I've been so busy lately that, um, yeah, I, I wish I could take more of a lead in this. But thank you, Professor Koto, for excellently running this. Um, and, yeah, we'll bring people up. Perfect. I know Sohib has to leave soon, so feel free to go whenever you need to. Um, great. Let's uh, start with the questions. We're going to start with Megan, who um, is wearing a newbie hat. So uh, <laughs> welcome to the room, Megan. Hi, thank you. It's my first day in Clubhouse. Oh. <laughs> um, I'm really enjoying this discussion so far. My background is I'm a former physicist and emergency medicine and sport medicine and a national team athlete in track cycling. Um, and I have found, I've, I've been plant-based for the last decade, um, that it's been really difficult for the reasons mentioned here to even share that with people, let alone um, advocate for others to make nutritional changes. And I was wondering if anyone on the panel could comment as to the psychology of that and why why this is such a hot button issue for people rather than other nutritional interventions, say for high performance. Why, um, why do people get so triggered by talking about their nutritional choices? Um, you're absolutely right, Megan. Um, so I, I have been vegan for 17 years and it never used to be an issue if I would mention it. And I have stopped mentioning it now uh, because um, it does have some very negative connotations, unfortunately. Um, but uh, maybe Sophie or Sweater or anyone else on the panel want to give their insights. It's not dissimilar to why we're polarized generally. I will speak to the US. We're polarized in the US and there's these identities that are associated with being conservative versus liberal. And you peel back the layers of that and you can there's like a strong correlation between not believing in the risk of COVID, not wanting to see the benefits of wearing a mask, not really um, appreciating the impacts of climate change. And there's a correlation between that and being conservative. It doesn't mean that if you, if you don't see the benefits of wearing a mask, you are, um, it doesn't mean if you're conservative, you don't see the benefits of wearing a mask, but if you don't see the benefits of wearing a mask, then very likely you are conservative. Similarly, veganism has fallen into that identity tribes in, and it's unfortunate, but veganism is seen as um, an identity of, uh, correlation with those on the progressive end of the spectrum. So those on the liberal left here in the US and it should be completely disentangled, but it's very much become uh, it's an, it's an um, experiment in sociology. It's one of these things that we have to dig our heels in and become ever more tribal to protect ourselves because it's the nature of how we have, were designed to operate in a society that's becoming increasingly more complex. And so unfortunately, while these things should not be associated with each other, they really are. So now it's almost like a, I'm not going to be vegan because the other side is or, you know, the people on the left are those people over there. So that's something we can, and again, we can address and we can overcome. And it's a similar practices in behavioral science and communication science that I apply to addressing why 
and how to disentangle feelings around other risks like infectious disease, like it, climate change and its impacts. It's a very similar process for understanding why there are these associations and uh, tribal identities affiliated with being vegan. Great. Can I jump yeah. in? Oh, so sorry. I'll let a moderator go first, if that's okay. Um, I can't see. Is that Dotsy? So I wanted Jamie. to bring in, uh, um, Jamie, if you could hang on a second. I just wanted to bring in Dotsy sure. and um, Nimai because I suspect that uh, you're at the severe receiving end of, of uh, judgment based on your diets. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go ahead and jump in on this one. Um, yeah, I'm no stranger to criticism, uh, definitely not a stranger to having to explain uh, my belief system. Um, and it is it is difficult to um, separate your, your belief systems from, from science. So my approach has always been um, discussing it with people that want to have an open-minded discussion and never trying to convince anybody, um, which unfortunately, you know, with with any tribe of people or, or identity like group of people that identify with a certain belief system oftentimes the loudest get the most attention um and they tend to have a misrepresented voice in the group so i try to approach it with a very non-judgmental um kind of undertone because i witnessed it many times in my own life and especially online you know having a large following you have many many interactions with people that can be looked at as data points and see what works what doesn't work um, and what invites the most people to the conversation without pushing them away I always say that you know there you know there's activism and there's attractivism you know activism you can go out and, and pick it and be in front of um, people telling them what to do or you can simply embody what you talk about and be a beacon so that people will be attracted to what you do and have a general genuine interest in learning and understanding because if people are not interested then they're automatically going to in most cases um, just stop listening uh, to what you have to say or dig their heels deeper in their own um, belief system so I, th I think it is finding a healthy balance of not being so binary when we when we discuss these things because as someone mentioned earlier you know nutritional science is such a it's a, it's a pretty vast field that has a, a lot of nuances and there's a lot of um, I, I, I guess lack of studies that kind of represent um, a lot of what people talk about. So finding that middle ground of, of having progress in a conversation without being so devices is, I mean, if somebody can come up with a, a solution, I'm, I'm more than happy to, <laughs> to, uh, to follow their lead because it, it's difficult being in the public eye. Yeah, but I, I think you touched Carl, on a I'd good point. I'd love to jump in here if I yep, may. Go ahead. Sorry, I, I did, don't mean to speak over anyone else, David Katz. Uh, first of all, great comments. Uh, Sweat, I agree. We're polarized about everything, and diet is an intimate experience every day. Uh, you know, it, food is the centerpiece of all social interaction. We celebrate with it. We console with it. We should understand that it's emotionally charged. It's a big part of our lives. It's a relationship. And, you know, the, the polarization about everything else extends to diet that, that's perhaps to be expected. We also should recognize, I think, two other key considerations. One is that we have applied moral overtones to all of this. Food is good or bad. The way you eat is good or bad. So, you know, that, that admonishing finger, I think, is problematic. And I think people rebel against it wherever they encounter it. So, you know, we, we need to make arguments that are temperate and 
when we're expressing an opinion, we should say it's an opinion, and we can say why we feel the way we do. When we're talking about evidence, and, and I would argue back, there is vast evidence supporting plant-predominant diets. Vast, consistent, overwhelming, every method, every population, spanning nations, decades. So th this, this general theme of healthy eating is not in dispute. And I say this as someone who's authored four editions of a leading nutrition textbook for health professionals. It's established fact. The other issue here, and, and we should not ignore this, is that there are vested interests in meat and dairy who are behind a lot of the opposition. So while we're talking about the advantages to human health, planetary health, and how we treat our fellow creatures of eating a whole lot less meat, and the Eat Lancet report, which everyone should know about, tells us that the modern world needs to cut back by about 90% on meat consumption just to stay within sustainable boundaries. We're going to feed this many or more people. So, you know, that's a pretty threatening message to the meat industry. And so they're busy marketing their, their products, which people were used to eating anyway. And so there's this notion that you're trying to take away my food. You're trying to take away my lifestyle. I grew up, you know, I love a barbecue. I love hamburgers and hot dogs. And uh, that reverberates in the background. And, you know, so we're the guys wearing the white hats uh, who are fighting the good fight. But we're up against the murmuring of our culture saying, you know, th these people are moralizing at you. There's nothing wrong with the way things are come to McDonald's and all will be well. So th the military industrial establishment, if you will, major elements of it do not want the prevailing dietary consumption and production patterns to change. Lots of money is being made off the status quo. And inevitably, at any time in history, the status quo is profitable for those entities that happen to be rich right now, and consequently power is concentrated there. Over the course of my career, I've, I've been a target of a lot of dedicated efforts and trolling and you know, efforts to undermine messaging rooted in fact and science that trace their origins to the beef industry. So, you know, I, I don't think we should dismiss that. I've written about it pretty extensively. We've experienced it. The final thing I'll say, and I know Scott and I share the space, with direct patient care, you know, you're operating at the end of one level, and it's your obligation as a clinician taking care of patients to go where they are. And I, I think that's a really useful paradigm. And, you know, Nimai, I think you're speaking to this. You, you really you don't want to be dogmatic. The one thing that shouldn't be on the menu is dogma. We should lose the moralizing. Again, we should differentiate what we know from what we think, favor, and prefer. Uh, but I'm perfectly prepared to say the science about human health is clearly on the side of plant-predominant diets. I favor plant-exclusive diets because you know I don't want any cruelty on my menu, and we're running out of planet. Um, I put those three things together. It's a strong argument. That's why I believe what I believe, but I'm not wagging a finger at anybody. Uh, so, you know, again, I, I think there are many forces at play here, some at the individual level, some tribal, some the general polarization of society, but there are deep pockets behind some of the opposition too. Thank you, David, and thank you, Sweta. And Sophie, am I right in understanding that the meat industry themselves are actually investing in some of the lab-grown and um, hybrid meats for the future, and could that be part of the solution? Yeah, I mean, they definitely are. And I think there's something really interesting in the last couple of weeks, 
which has been publicised as Burger King, um, introducing the Impossible Burger, at least in the UK, to their menus. And I've seen some really good advertising from Ogilvy, where they have kind of taste-tested the burger with really staunch meat-eaters, and no one could tell the difference. So I think they have a goal, I can't remember the percentage, but something like 50% of their offering wants to be plant-based. I think the meat industry are beginning to realise this is a trend that is going, and they would like to adopt plant-based into their repertoire, so kind of adding it into meat to expand it more broadly into a kind of moving away from selling themselves as meat um, producers, but more broadly to kind of protein producers. And I guess there is quite a lot of benefits to that for the meat industry in that you can produce meat, especially with lab-grown, that's very clean. Um, you don't need to use antibiotics in the meat you, under controlled circumstances. And I think eventually when that reaches scale, it will probably be really cost-effective. Um, we're just, we're not there yet. So the technology isn't there to produce these products at scale. But I'm pretty sure that the meat industry, I mean, they're not stupid. (laughs) They're going to see the benefits of this, both from a consumer and health point of view. So I think we're going to see very much more expansion into um, offering a larger range of meat-free kind of imitation products upcoming. That's good news. Thanks, Megan, for your question. And uh, let's move along to Muzamil. Yeah, hi, thank you so much for having me on here. I I come come on a while ago, um, so my, I just wanted to add something to what um, what my friend Jeff had said earlier, and Dr. David Katz as well about um, the importance of just adding plants further. Because, uh, like it was mentioned, we just simply aren't eating enough fruits and vegetables. Ninety-seven uh, percent of Canadians and Americans are deficient in fiber. No one is deficient in protein. There was a study done that looked at that um, omnivores, people who eat animal products as well as plants, are eating two to three times more protein than their requirements. And even vegans who eat no meat are eating 70% more protein uh, than their requirements. It seems that everyone is getting more than sufficient protein, but yet um, 97% are deficient in one of the macronutrients no one talks about. And also wanted to touch on that uh, I, uh, even though I'm whole food plant-based, um, I completely understand that people don't need to fully go plant-based to reap the benefits. Uh, when we look at the blue zones, um, the, the five blue zones with the longest living people on average around the world, um, most of them are, uh, most of, um, all of them are, are mostly plant-based with the average of 90 to 95% of the calories coming from plants. Uh, we don't have a longest living society that eats a lot of meat. Um, and that keeping that in mind is quite important as well when we are talking about nutrition because we need to be looking at how people around the world are eating with, with for the populations that do have uh, lowest amount of uh, disease risk as well as highest uh, lifespan and health span uh, when making recommendations. Um, and that's where the blue zones can be quite handy. And then one of them, uh, Loma Linda, we have Seventh-day Adventists who a lot of them do eat a completely vegan diet. And we can look at that as well. So we do have a lot of longevity data. And I just wanted to earlier come on and add to that, that we have sufficient amount of data to show the safety, but also that we don't have uh, data to show that uh, populations that do eat a lot of meat on a daily basis in a in, in few meals a day. Um, so I, I, I would personally never recommend that based on that and, and would always make recommendations that people be eating mostly plants, if not all plants. Um, this is Musa Mel, and I'm done. 
you share that research, please? Because most general population are usually under-eating proteins. And so I'd be interested to know who the research was done on and how it was performed, please. Yeah, Adam, for sure. I'd be, I'd be totally happy to share that with you on Instagram. And also uh, wanted to add that the, the recommendations by the World Health Organization as well as Dietitians of Canada, where I am at, uh, is 0 0.8 grams per kilograms of body weight. And that is a lot lower than what people are eating. Um, like I mentioned, they're eating two to three times more than that. But yeah, Kothar, you wanted to say something, so... I was just uh, going to ask you to send me the link to the, is it the um, Loma Linda studies that you're referring to? Um, if you can send me those links and I'll, I'll put all of the resources together. Um, Kothar, one, of, one of the papers that I sent you earlier actually is a population level scan of both average prevailing dietary intake levels and average dietary intake levels associated with different dietary patterns and, and reaffirms the perspective that by and large, certainly here in the U.S., people are over-consuming protein relative to needs. Thank you. Hey, I want to, this is Jeff, I, I want to bring in Dr. Dr. Scott Stoll. You know, he's, he's spent a decade educating uh, doctors, uh, you know, uh, uh, that plants, you know, food, uh, lifestyle, um, food is medicine. So I want just I would love for you to chime in on on Adam's question about you know in the, in the westernized world are we suffering from you know lack of protein and because because again we're back to protein <laughs> we're we're not talking about the twenty five plus you know thirty thousand plus phytochemicals that are in whole foods so maybe just comment a little bit about you know the science compliance gap with physicians and your experience working with doctors over the last decade and trying to help the gen pop eat more plants. Um, thanks, Scott. Yeah, sure, Jeff. Thank you. And, uh, you know, Adam and, and uh, Muzmel, you're, you're exactly right that um, we need to focus. It's not, a, it's not a protein deficit in our diet. It's a fiber deficit. And, you know, stepping back just one, one step, you know, when we think about the USDA's uh, evaluation of food and most of the research that's done been done around food we really are evaluating 150 nutrients um, and estimated today there's there's about 26,000 different identified nutrients phytochemicals etc in food and so food is much larger than we understand there's a lot of dark matter in food and uh, I think that you know as the research evolves we're going to see that perhaps our understanding was fairly paleolithic or rudimentary, and uh, and food is, is much more complex, much more elegant, much more beautiful than we understand. And so, Jeff, to your question, um, you know, what I've always tried to stress with my patients, working with them individually and then working with uh, clinicians, um, and I know David has done this well as the president of the American College of uh, Lifestyle Medicine, you know, uh, you're meeting an individual patient in the, in the exam room, and you really have to meet them where they are. Um, I think all of us that are physicians that have worked with people and, um, and even seen the basic non-compliance in medication, which, you know, approaches 50%, you know, if you're an honest physician, you realize that you can't just tell people what to do. You actually have to come alongside of them and walk a journey out with them. Um, first, leading by example. Uh, two, you have to inspire your patients. You have to inspire individuals. Uh, and that's not through dogma. It's not through... Uh, paternalistic uh, approaches in medicine, but it's really through compassion. You know, it's it's a compassion of recognizing that that individual that's sitting across from you 
um, has a great need, and then I need to find the greatest way to, to inspire them. And so in working with physicians, what I've encouraged um, other clinicians to do and uh, what we've found to be successful is, you know, you first identify, um, you know, what the, the individual's greatest need is at that moment. Um, and, you know, for example, and just to kind of bring some context to our performance panel, if I was working with a young high school athlete or a college athlete, um, you know, perhaps rather than talking about the benefits of, of nutrition to prevent and suspend reverse heart disease, you know, I would identify what was most important to them that day. Um, perhaps it's acne that's the most pressing issue. Um, you know, maybe it's recovery. Uh, and so I'll start talking about nutrition from, you know, that critical uh, hot button in their life and kind of build out around that, knowing that if I can motivate and inspire them to something that's really relevant to them today, I have a much greater opportunity to be an influence in their life when I see them in two to four weeks. And I think that I'll end with this. One of the most important things that we can do as clinicians, as friends, and as family members is remember that we don't have to convince somebody the first time that we see them or the second time that we see them. You know, we have relationships with people and we gain the opportunity to influence uh, through building trust. And so as a, uh, a clinician or as a friend or a family member, we establish trust by showing compassion. We establish trust by being trustworthy and being honest and, um, and earning the right to continue to speak into their life the, at the next visit, at the next uh, meeting, the next family get-together. And it's really over time, leading by love in that way, that we can have the greatest potential opportunity to change. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Coulter, I, I'm just going to forward uh, on to Janine. Uh, and Janine, are you there? I am, thanks. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm really enjoying the conversation. I'm finding it very interesting. I, I just wanted to contribute a few thoughts, if that's okay. Um, while I Could we keep it, Janine, we, I just want to check with the other panelists if um, they're okay for a few more questions. We've still got four or five more questions. So just want to check how we're doing for time with the other panelists. Anybody need to leave? Uh, I have to go right now, but I just want to say thank you, everybody. It's been an absolute pleasure to be a part of this conversation. And it, I mean, just being a part of it really inspired me for the future of what's to come. And um, thank you again for having me. Thanks so much, Nima. It's been great having you um, join us. Um, okay, we'll keep going. Thanks, but if we, if we could keep to one quest question each so that we can give everyone a chance to um, ask their question. Thanks. Go ahead, Jenny. Sorry to interrupt. Sure. Thank you. Um, not so much a question, just a couple very brief thoughts. I don't want to take up a lot of your time. Um, I really appreciate the conversation. Um, I was curious as to if anyone else up here besides Adam is not vegan. Um, I just, so I am a fitness professional. Um, I actually was vegan at one point and I do have clients who are vegan. I have clients that are vegetarian clients that adhere to many different types of diets. I think just the main thing that I wanted to speak to that hasn't been brought up is, is the idea of classism and how for many people to be able to have access to adequate food types in order to be able to fully adhere to a vegan diet at this point in time could be very difficult. To eat just fruits and vegetables, you have to have, and grains, pardon me, to comprise a diet that is going to give you all of the meat, the amino acids you need to know how to make sure you're getting your B12 in your diet, 
it can be very complicated and there is guidance required in order to be able to do this property. And yes, protein additionally, because as we know, it is important for aging. Having sufficient protein does help us to, to maintain adequate muscle in the body and muscle helps with strength which helps with bone density. So for that reason, I think that's one of the, the, the reasons why protein keeps coming up so much. So just going back to the idea that a vegan diet for many people to get all of the nutrients needed to have a healthy diet to live off of, for many people, especially here in the U.S., there are people that do live in food deserts. This is not a realistic way for them to to be able to follow a diet and get everything they need at this point in time. I would hope that maybe as we look at environmental changes and way that we can maybe make food more affordable and accessible for all people, that that could change. I do understand the environmental impacts, but I do want to say respectfully that I think there's only one side of science that's very much being brought up on this stage. And there are many other sides of the coin also, if we look at research and we look at meta-analysis that do also show um, some other sides to this argument that's up here on the stage today. And I'm Janine and I'm done. Thank you so much. Thanks, Janine. So um, I don't know if you were here at the beginning of the, the um, conversation. Um, we did touch on, on that briefly, that we do need um, representation for both sides of, of the argument. But it's actually very difficult to find proponents of not adding more plants to one's diet which is what we're talking about today there is some um i completely agree with you in terms of the access and i would say not so much the financial but the education of how to um how to live on a plant predominant diet and there has been one fairly credible study recently that did show a higher percentage of fractures in those who are completely vegan. So, uh, Dr. David Katz, I think you're you're off the mic, <laughs> ready to respond as always. Thank you. Thanks, Guthrie. Yeah, just a, a few comments. I, I am not strictly vegan. My wife is French, grew up in southern France. Her <laughs> ethnic heritage means a lot to her. We've shifted ever more in the direction of veganism for the sake of the planet. So just a few comments. First, I, I've reviewed this topic without bias, both in the scientific literature and in multiple editions of a textbook that have required a, a view from altitude. The, the fourth edition of Nutrition and Clinical Practice has well over 10,000 scientific citations. And, and it's a team of authors working very hard to reach an unbiased evidence-based conclusion. We're human beings. Our, our biases tug at us, no doubt. And I'm definitely biased about treating our fellow creatures kindly and saving the planet. But the weight of evidence very clearly points toward plant-predominant diets, which do not prevail in the United States, the UK, or industrialized countries around the world. So if we're going to correct what's broken, it's movement toward more plant-based eating. That really is what the evidence shows. I have made a concerted career-long effort to be a builder of bridges, not bunkers, and actually reach out to the other side. Two quick examples. One, a 2015 conference sponsored by Old Ways. Uh, I co-chaired it with Walter Willett in Boston. It's called Old Ways Common Ground. We specifically went out of our way to bring in nutrition experts who'd spent their careers advocating for meat consumption, advocating for dairy consumption, advocating for paleo. And we all presented our cases to the same audience and then in between sessions worked together on a consensus statement. That entire conference, uh, all of the talks, the videos, the slides, and the consensus statement, and we did reach consensus and agreed 
that we agreed about 90% of everything, which, again, encapsulated briefly by Michael Pollan and Eat Food, Not Too Much, Mostly Plants, all available online to all of you. We then took what was that, that one isolated event, a conference, and turned it into a campaign in the form of the True Health Initiative. That's my 501c3. We have roughly 500 leading experts from 46 countries linking arms to sing kumbaya about diet and lifestyle. And the beauty of it is this was not you know, selective in terms of you, know, it, you can only join if you're vegan or plant-predominant. Some of the world's leading experts on the paleo diet, people who advocate for low carb are there as well. We also look through the three lenses, uh, kindness and, and decency, sustainability, and, and human health effects. The last thing I'll say in response to, to those comments, I, you know, it, it is, I think, somewhat obsolete to think that having a high-quality vegan diet is complicated. We, we now know that you don't need to go out of your way to combine protein sources at, at, at meals that over the course of the day, it, as long as your diet is balanced, um, a vegan diet will provide ample protein over the course of the day. You don't have to make a specific effort. And if your non-vegan diet is unbalanced, it won't meet your health needs either. Uh, and, you know, frankly, the need to supplement B12 is real. Uh, but just about everybody who's not out in the sun needs either fortification or supplementation with vitamin D. So the, the idea that, you know, there's something unique about veganism because there's a role for supplementation that's just not true. You know, fortification is supplementation by another name, and a lot of the nutrients that we'd have a hard time getting enough of are reaching us that way. Uh, Omega-3 is another example for people who eat lots of meat and don't eat fish routinely. So, you know, again, I, I think select supplementation should play the role that the term implies, supplemental to a high-quality diet. Veganism is not unique in that regard. I'd just like to respectfully respond that my peers who are researchers, Dr. Mike Isriatel, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, and also my friend, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, who is an obesity specialist, they all support evidence that would argue a lot of those facts. And, and I will leave it at there. Cather, if, if you would like their references for maybe a future panel, I'd be so very happy to recommend them to help have um, a discussion on both sides of this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janine. Yes, please do send them my way and we can um, uh, discuss offline. Um, I would like to bring in Dr. Robert Ostfeld, who's joined us, who is a cardiologist and professor of medicine and preventive cardiology. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm late to this uh, wonderful conversation um, and I appreciate being invited up with everyone here. I'm, I'm very familiar with the film um, and uh, was going to um, oh, great. I see that person is still in the group. Uh, I, I heard some of the recent comments by um, uh, Janine, and I, I wanted to add that I work as a cardiologist in the Bronx, uh, New York, uh, where it's um, there's uh, quite a bit of, uh, of health issues and arguably the uh, uh, one of the most uh, socially disadvantaged inner cities uh, in the U.S. And I have many patients there who are able. Uh, to adopt either a plant-predominant or fully plant-based dietary pattern. We clearly, uh, you know, take fiscal considerations in, into mind. It does not have to be um, expensive. Of course, we're not uh, discussing organic stuff or green juices, but there's lots of wonderful ways that people can adopt a more plant-based diet in a very cost-effective way. And certainly, we go ahead and supplement vitamin B12 like many People, whether they are consuming animal, more animal-based foods or plant-based foods, need uh, to consume. And, and in a bigger picture sense, 
you know, of course, we have a long way to go as a society to help us be eating more healthfully. If you look at a wonderful study, very recent, published in circulation by Dr. Bundy, and I believe uh, Don Law Jones may have been the senior author on that, they tried to estimate the, pop, the impact of changing a variety of behaviors on uh, future cardiovascular risk. And one of the things that they estimated was the, quote, diet quality in the U.S., uh, in, in an 11,000 patient database. And what they found is they defined it as you have, you'd have a very high quality diet if you met four of the five following things. And the way they defined it was four and a half servings of fruits and vegetables a day, three servings of whole grains a day, um, not a lot of salt, not a lot of sugar, sugary stuff, and at least two servings of fatty fish a week is how they defined a high quality diet. So having four of those five is high quality out of 11,000 people, 0.7% of the US had a high quality diet as they defined it. And more than 50% of people had a low quality diet, uh, meaning I think it was uh, zero to two of those. So we have a really long way uh, to go. Uh, so um, uh, I, yeah, so that's really uh, what I wanted to add. You can uh, eat a plant-based way in a very cost-effective manner. Uh, we supplement B12, and of course, as a, on a population level, we have a long way to go. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Osfeld. Uh, some great insights. Not, just want to repeat that 0.7% of Americans have a good quality diet. Is that right? Right. According to that study, Dr. Bundy circulation, it's probably no more than two months old. We shall share that uh, reference. Thank you. Any thoughts from the panelists before we move on to the next question? Am I am I able to jump in this, Musamil? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, just for reference, um, so I'm a medical student with a background in nutrition, and, and uh, I I I just in regards to the protein that was mentioned. Um, like Dr. Kate said it perfectly, that a lot of people forget that all the essential amino acids are found in in all plant foods. The, the concept of incomplete protein is, is quite um, outdated and uh, it just, they vary, but just like vitamins and minerals, they vary. And the other thing I want to talk about was in regards to uh, people who in food deserts and other areas, um, the, 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 the plant proteins, and if we're not talking about vegan proteins, but rather the whole foods like beans, lentils, these are one of the cheapest foods on the planet. And they are often, in the canned versions at least, uh, are often found uh, around around everywhere in the States and Canada, even in the food, uh, in the food desert. So it's often more about education if we are recommending people eat more plants, which is what, uh, what a lot of studies like that that we mentioned are recommending we just need to educate the people in their regions that they are living in in what sources they can they can get that from um if they're if because the type of meat they're eating in those areas are not going to be high quality meats anyway um they're most likely eating hot dogs and things like that for a lot of it and if we can get them to switch over to beaned cans although uh raw beans are much healthier but if we can just get them to switch to bean cans and bean, uh, canned beans and canned lentils and things like that, that will still be much more optimal for their health. So it's always looking at the context and making a suggestion that way. Um, thank you, Mr. Uh, 
thank you. Ms. We got about 15 minutes left, or maybe 20 minutes left, Coach. So I know you want to keep rolling. And I think uh, Stephen, I believe, is up next. So thank you for your patience, Stephen. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jeff. First of all, thanks to everybody for a really fantastic conversation today and to you, Jeff, especially for having told me about the room in the first place when we first met a couple weeks ago. I'm Stephen. I'm living in New York City and I became plant-based about three years ago or so for some of the same reasons that Dr. David Katz talked about how he and other people have migrated to a plant-based diet. Uh, first, a quick uh, comment and then two really quick questions. I produce and host a podcast called One Way Ticket Show. Would love to have a number of you on the panel on my show. So if I reach out to you, you'll know what it's all about. It's not a vegan-based show, but my latest guest, and I wanted just to share this, is Rabbi Yonatan Narol, and he runs and, and founded the Center for Interfaith, uh, the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. It's a mouthful. And he just wrote a book called Eco Bible. And he points to the fact that sustainability, animal welfare, and also a plant-based diet all have their origins in the Bible. So there you go if you want to check it out. Anyway, my two really quick questions for everybody is... Um, only one, Stephen. Know. You're only allowed one. Sorry? So, please keep it to one question because we have so many... Oh. Oh, sorry, question. then I'll just keep it to one one question. Can you talk about organics, um, organics versus non-organics in our produce? Because I'm here in New York City and there's a produce stand practically on every street corner and it's very easy for me just to get my fruit and vegetables there versus going to Fairway, for example, on the Upper West Side here and getting my organics. So that was really my question. I'm Stephen and I'm done speaking and thanks a million. Thank you, Stephen. Um, I mean, my view on organics is well first of all that the um the kind of referencing system and standardization of organic foods is very poor um and um if we are pushing for plant-based diets and organic foods i think that's a big ask and when we look at studies uh, on organic produce if they are raw produce then yes, quite often there's a benefit from them being organic in terms of the antioxidant um, availability. But once we cook vegetables, then the availability of the antioxidants goes down to, uh, I believe, around 20%. Um, and so um, it's not necessarily a focus for this discussion. But uh, Dr. David Katz, over to you. Yeah, thank you, Coach. Yeah, just quickly reviewed this topic any number of times. The scientific evidence of benefit to humans directly from organic rather than conventional produce is, as you might expect, very limited. Since we live in a contaminated world, uh, water sources inevitably transmit some of the contaminants, so even organically grown produce is exposed to water source that is not perfectly pristine. We have to grow our food on another planet now to have that. Uh, fish and seafood can't be perfectly protected. And so there's a lot of overlap, making studies hard. And of course, if you rinse produce, you know, you're talking about very small amounts. It's clear that organic offers advantages to the planet. It's sensible that it would offer advantages to people. But the theme that you've heard repeated in this conversation is the importance of increasing intake of fruits and vegetables. I would extend that to legumes as well. But if we just talk about eating more fruits and vegetables, and we had to place primacy either on doing that or eating organic, the, the greater benefit to the population at large would come from eating whatever whole fruits and vegetables you can get, can afford, or accessible to you. 
if you then are privileged enough to be able to shop organic as a favor to the planet and probably to your health too, although that's harder to confirm, great, please do it. You're, you're being a good citizen. But I don't think it needs to encumber our general message that, you know, just some reasonable degree of care when you rinse produce is sufficient. Uh, and the net benefit of eating produce, all of the studies that speak to that are obviously not differentiating whether it's organic or conventional. Most of it's conventional. So despite whatever trace contaminants come along from the ride, massive net benefit there. So you keep getting your, your fruits and veggies wherever you can conveniently get them. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen, Thank for your you, question. Um, I'm going right. to jump to BJ Fogg, who's joined us, um, because he's a, um, he gives great insights on how we can really shift behavior. He's a behavioral scientist at Stanford. So sorry for jumping the queue, people who are waiting. We will get to you. Hey, well, I, I'm going to thank you for inviting me to the stage. I didn't have a question, but now I do. David, <laughs> I just printed up your weekly, weekly newsletter, and it was like, should I read David's newsletter or go to Clubhouse? And here you are. I love your weekly newsletter uh, that you send out an email. It's one page. My question is about your habit of producing that. How do you create such a high-quality weekly piece of content? How do you get that done every week? <laughs> well, BJ, very nice of you to, to turn up. Great to hear your voice. Um, yeah, we didn't stage this, folks, but... Uh, <laughs> We are friends, so thank you, BJ. I, I follow my passions. You know, I, I think writing is either hard or easy for people. It tends to be easy for me. My dad's a doc. My mom's a poet. I am clearly a mix of the two. So writing comes easily, and it's still there, there's friction involved when I'm under a deadline and have to write something I don't feel like writing. But what I do with those weekly columns is I pick a topic that's on my mind anyway, and actually there's relief in it. So, you know, in some ways, I'm, it's a pressure release valve. Um, it, these things are stirring around inside my head. I get them out on the page. I feel better. So I, I really appreciate your kind comments about the quality of them. I, I hope that's consistently the case. Uh, but, the, you know, this wouldn't be the remedy for everybody, but just works really well for me. I follow my passions. They spill on the page. And um, the fact that some people appreciate those shared thoughts is... Uh, well, that, that, that's icing on the cake, as it were. So thank you very much. Well done. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of editing because it always fits one page exactly. And it all, it's always very timely. So I know you and I are friends, but we haven't talked about this yet. And I just want to <laughs> thank you for it. Hey, everybody, if you're not getting David's weekly, I guess you call it a column, the yeah, preventative medicine column, it is a bargain. It's free. <laughs> And it's awesome. Thank you. Well, it's at least worth what you'd pay for it. That's for sure. Thank <laughs> well, Thanks very much, BJ. We'll, we'll add the link to that as well. Thanks, BJ. We're, we're all about the democratization of health information. So uh, I'd highly recommend people subscribe to that. Thank you, BJ. Jason, I can see you today, <laughs> as opposed to the last time you were with us. Thanks for waiting. Oh, yes. That's always a bonus. <laughs> thanks for waiting. And uh, do you have a question? Oh, thanks so much. I've been I've been listening the whole time, and uh, Jeff, thanks so much for putting this room together, and Kother and David, Adam, Scott, everybody else who is here. That's uh, that, that you know maybe had to jump off. Like, wow, what an amazing group! What an amazing conversation. Um, I could ask uh, many questions, um, but really, I guess what I'm really curious about. I mean, I did want to just mention um, the, the Joe Rogan had um, he had. Uh, Oh my God! James James Wilkes was on the podcast 
uh, sort of defending uh, against Chris Cresser, who was on the podcast before. And, and, I'm, and I'm curious, uh, you know, thoughts on that. I mean, I watch both of those podcasts. Chris Cresser went on Joe Rogan and sort of, you know, did this debunking of Game Changers. And then um, uh, James Lightning Wilkes went on for a round two. And at the end of that, Joe Rogan was like, yep, okay, I need to like take down that last episode because everything Chris Cresser just said was like systematically debunks debunked by James Lightning Wilkes. So just wanted to bring that up and brings a little bit of attention to that and, and would love any comments from anyone who may have seen those. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I did I did take a look at Go those ahead. as well, uh, Jason, and yeah. uh, maybe we should get Joe Rogan on our show. <laughs> so if anyone has a contact with him, we'd, we'd love to have him on the show. So, so you know, we I think what we try to do is bring a balanced conversation and i think it's helpful to have this people from both sides in the same room at the same time to have a, a civil conversation that's that's uh, uh represents both sides it's actually very difficult to organize that because um civilized is the, <laughs> the term that's usually missing um but yeah if anyone hasn't seen those um i believe one of those is four hours long so uh, it's a long watch but it is worthwhile <laughs> it's a commitment uh, it is a commitment yeah sorry jeff go ahead yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll touch base on it a little bit. Again, uh, I, I've watched it twice. Um, I've actually gone to others that have actually critiqued the critique, like the critiques on the Joe Rogan show of these two interacting. And again, um, if you if you are patient enough to wade through it all, uh, my takeaway from all of that is they agree on 90%. <laughs> it's the 10% where they disagree. And again, you know, time and time again, we, we, we love that fringe debate. We love to argue on the margins. And what we fail to do, what we always are, you know, perpetually distracted from are the basic fundamentals that we know to be true. When 90% of Americans don't eat enough plants, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, you know, in the end. So that, that, that debate, it's a fun debate. Joe Rogan's entertaining. You know, Wilkes comes at it, MMA fighter. Cresser, you know, gets a little over his tips a little bit, you know. All that's fine, well, and good. And the nuance of that fringe, those are all fun conversations to have, especially after a glass of wine or at a cocktail party. But again, we fail to do what we know to be true. And I would submit that those two actually agree on much, much more than they disagree on. So I hope that helps. Yeah, Jeff, and I, and I didn't mean to bring it back to uh, polarizing the conversation. I just thought it was an interesting point, point of discussion. And, um, you know, just one thing that you said that I've, I've like been a, it's been a huge takeaway is like that you said um you know translating uh, uh science into compliance right like just i'm just blown away by just as you as many people have mentioned just how much there seems to really be a lot of con scientific consensus that like we need to be getting more plants in people's diets but like the compliance and not only on the individual level but on the systems level the compliance just isn't there and that is a huge problem and um i do a, i do a weekly room on on these kinds of issues if anybody's interested um you know getting more plant-based into you know academia and things like that but um yeah i am really enjoying this conversation and i will pass the mic but uh thank you all so much for your time i've really been enjoying it Thank you, Jason, and you're always welcome to the stage. Um, Jamie, thank you for waiting. Of course, thank you so much for having, having me. Goodness, I can't speak. <laughs> um, I really have been loving this conversation um, and all the different points of view, views that have been there. Um, somebody asked a question earlier. They were talking about why they felt. I have a really quick comment and then a really quick question because I know we're low on time. 
Um, someone had asked a question earlier about why they feel why um, nutrition can be so difficult to talk about um, and really kind of heated. And I loved all of your answers. I thought it was great. And I wanted to kind of bring in a psychological perspective as well. Um, I, what we eat is a belief system. Vegans aren't the only ones with it. Uh, people who eat meat, as long as you have the choice, as long as you can choose what you can eat, I should say, um, it is a belief system. And she coined this, uh, Dr. Melanie Joy, a psychologist, she coined this term as carnism. Um, and carnism is essentially why we eat some animals, but not others. So I feel like, like any belief system, things can get heated when we're talking about it. So on top of everything else that nutrition is difficult to talk about, there's also that, um, kind of psychological perspective to bring in there. Um, and if you want to learn more about carnism or any of Dr. Melanie Joy's work, feel free to contact me or to check the links in my profile. They're not actually links. I think they're just the ads um, for her profiles as well as carnism.org. But for my really quick question, um, I started my vegan journey six years ago, but I really started getting into the nutritional, like, evidence-based nutrition, you know, not just, there's a lot of like alkaline diets and, and that kind of stuff floating out there. Um, and I, it wasn't until I found some really great scientific communicators, um, such as Simon Hill on Plant Proof, um, Dr. Danielle Bellardo, uh, Nicholas Carter. Um, they're all really excellent. And I think it's so important to have these scientific communicators who are able to translate such a difficult, um, such difficult concepts, kind of to layman's terms, if you will, um, especially on Instagram where it's very visual. And I mean, there have been a lot, I mean, a lot of you are scientific communicators and I, I feel so honored to be in this room with you. Uh, but I wanted to hear if I could hear maybe just one or two from each of you really quickly who your favorite scientific communicators are, because I'm always looking to expand uh, my view. So thank you so much. And I am done speaking. Thanks, Jamie. So I think, um, some of my favourites are in the room, which is why we <laughs> invited them here. And in addition, we've had, so Danielle Bellardo is great as well. And she has actually been, she's a regular in um, our room as well. She's been on three times, I think. Um, and Professor Tim Spector, who really is um, uh, doing some pioneering work on the microbiome. And we had a session last week on uh, calories in, calories out, looking at the response of blood glucose, um, postprandial blood glucose. And so all of these recordings are available as well for you to listen to. Um, I don't think we have time for everyone to answer that question. What I'm going to do when, when we collect closing remarks from people, maybe we can ask them to mention their favourite scientists as well. Um, that sounds great. Thank great. You Thanks, so Jamie. So last question, Troy. Hello, hello. This is hello. Troy speaking. Thanks, Thank you Richard. very much for calling me to the stage. I really appreciate it. I just want to add something, if you don't mind, very briefly. I know we're pressed for time. I just want to say a wonderful conversation, and I'm hearing from a lot of people. Um, I just wanted to comment on our current food system globally. From my opinion, humbly, it's a very finite game. You know, human health loses. Planetary health loses. Humans are exploited globally, whether it be a factory farm worker working, killing, slaughtering animals whether it be someone picking our foods in the fields across America or wherever on the globe, you know, and more importantly, animals lose, you know, with all this added, you know, this finite way we're living on this planet. I just want to suggest to those who are on the stage or those who are in the audience, just try a vegan diet, try a whole plant-based diet, whatever you want to call it, research it, look into it for your own self and get your own anecdotal experience with, Hey, I ate plants only 
for a year. I ate grains only for a year. And this is what I found out. And, you know, and then you can go back because I don't think animal products are leaving our planet anytime soon. So we can listen to scientists, which is great. We can watch movies, which is great. And I love Game Changers. But I think all of us owe ourselves and to the planet to give it a try. And you can always go back to your normal way of living. I just wanted to add that. I hope that made sense. Thank you very much for allowing me to be on the stage. And um, Troy, I'm done speaking. Thank you, Troy. Um, it's a great point. Any, any comments from the panel? <laughs> no, not even Dr. David Katz. <laughs> um, so I think we're, we'd all agree uh, with sure, that. Yeah, I'm happy to. I, I think that lines up beautifully with what I've argued are the three lenses. There are no healthy people on a ruined, inhospitable planet. The fate of the planet is a public health issue. It's a personal health issue. So I, I do think in this time, we're obligated to look at food through multiple lenses, direct effects on human health, effects on fellow creatures, and indirect effects on human health, but also everything else that matters in this beautiful world on planetary systems. And viewed that way, and then with social uh, justice thrown into the equation, I would quite agree. And, and that, again, this was the conclusion in the seminal Eat Lancet report on people, food, planet, that we really... This is not a moral challenge. It's not a provocation. It's a simple scientific fact. You look at sustainable thresholds. The modern world has to eat a lot fewer animals and animal products. It's just the way it is. Yeah, and I'll just I'll just close. You know, I know I'm on the hour here, so maybe this is just my kind of closing remarks. Is you know, thank you all for everyone for being here. I, I you know. My career over the last 15 years has been to speak to the performance side of eating more plants. I am not a vegan, right? I'm a 90-10 guy. Uh, sometimes I'm 85-15. Sometimes I'm 80-20. But my experience over the last 20 years in consuming more plants was or has been physiological durability. And, and if you want to play the long game of human performance, you know, health span equaling lifespan, you know, in the world we live in today, it's not necessarily the strongest that survive or the smartest that survive it's those that can adapt um we can have a whole other room about what's the life expectancy of a human and i believe that you know in the end the the, the, the conversations we have around food and nutrition generally are what i call snorkeling conversations and that's you know that's what most people can handle it's either carbs proteins fats calories you know we spend a, an inordinate amount of time today talking about proteins but what it, the majesty of whole foods, you know, the 25, 30,000 phytochemicals, what does what that does inside of us? Uh, Dr. Scott Stoll spoke to vanity, you know, vanity, zits, virility. Um, actually, you know, Dr. Dean Ornish has, has published um, studies on fear behavior change versus hope and vitality and curiosity. And, and guess which is more effective? It's actually helping people play on the right side of their own bell curve, their A game. And the scuba diving discussion when it comes to food, Scott talked about the dark matter. What The best thing we don't know about, the greatest thing that we know about plants is what we don't know about it yet. So that Lewis and Clark discovery phase, science discovers what's easy to discover first, not necessarily what's most important. And so in the end, I think the game changers global narrative is get the world eating more plants. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. Thank you for the audience. Uh, 
I host the weekly room on this conversation. I don't have the horsepower of Dr. Katz and Dr. Stoll, uh, but it's every Tuesday night, so we'll uh, we'll keep rolling, and maybe we can bring some of these back, some of these people back on a weekly basis. And there's more Game Changer cast members, so I'll turn it back to Kother to wrap up. Thanks, Kother. Thanks, Jeff. I shall come to your room as well on uh, <laughs> Tuesdays. Um, doc, I'll go on to Dr. S uh, Scott Stoll for any closing remarks, and then Adam. Yeah, thank you, Kother, and I just want to thank you again, and so, Habe and uh, Jeff for organizing this great conversation, and appreciate uh, all the panelists and all of you that ask questions. Um, I'll just keep it very brief, and, uh, you know, the one thing that I think, I'm a father of six, and now a granddaddy of three, two beautiful little girls and a little baby boy that was born last week, and uh, one of the approaches that I've taken to life, which I think has really adjusted the way that I think, believe, and act um, is to approach life from a stewardship uh, perspective. And this is something that I've taught about at our conferences and have encouraged clinicians to begin, you know, approaching life as a steward, that, you know, all of us are simply passing through this life. We are stewarding the earth, the soil, the air, the land. We're stewarding animals and we're stewarding our families. And, you know, the anticipation is that we'll leave something better behind. And so in the approach of nutrition, we've talked about, you know, the reductionism and compartmentalization of, of nutrition down to, you know, micronutrients and biochemistry. Um, and, you know, the complexities of the food system in the world. But I think, you know, personalizing this and, and begin um, thinking about nutrition and life from a stewardship perspective helps to kind of refine and perhaps focus um, what we're going to do personally. And when we change personally, we begin changing our families and encouraging the stewardship perspective. There are great things that can happen and, and transform people around us. And, and um, you know, many of you are influencers. And, you know, I would encourage you also to uh, encourage other people to begin taking on a stewardship perspective. It's a long view, which really directly impacts the short-term choices that we make today. So thanks again for allowing me to be a part of this conversation. And um, it's great to see you all. And, and David, we'll have to catch up maybe in the next week or two by a phone call. I'd, I'd love to do that. Likewise, Scott. Thank you, Dr. Scott. It's been great having you. Adam, any final um, thoughts or comments? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a, it's been an interesting chat, and um, you know, if there's any future rooms, I, I would like to see you know uh, potentially more people from both sides of the coin. I'm all about you know everyone eating more plants. I think it, there's not enough plants eaten, and so I do agree that we do need more plants. I, I just feel. There's, there's an element that science can't touch on, which is people's mental state and, you know, how they uh, how they perceive food and the perception of, you know, everyone does have an emotional um, a, a connection or history with food. And sometimes that can get missed when we're just looking at the research and, you know, oh, trying to improve people's lives, but we don't look at how it actually affects people and their well-being. And so... You know, I, I, as someone who deals with people on a daily basis, I I'm, I'm guess I'm kind of coming from more of that side. But, you know, it's been a great conversation, so thanks. Thanks, Adam, and, and completely agree with you. We want to look at the holistic side of, of how um, people um, uh, have a relationship with food rather than uh, being dogmatic about any particular type of um, dietary pattern. Um, Dr. David, you're... It, any last thoughts before I close the room? 
Uh, mostly, Cother, to thank you for the absolutely beautiful job you've done uh, choreographing us through all of this. And to say Scott's words were absolutely beautiful, so amen to all of that. I'm also a bit jealous about those grandkids. I, I have five grown children, but uh, no productivity on that front yet, so I'm still waiting there. You have a new puppy. That, that's as close as I can get. Uh, the, the only thing I want to add is directly related to the Game Changers, which is what we promise people. And, you know, just to remind... Uh, you know, whatever quibbling might be done about the film, the athletes featured in it are magnificent. And they absolutely do make the case that the stunning extremes of human performance, to say nothing of daily human performance and, you know, uh, pregnancy and, and, you know, just making it through the, the ardors of any given day. Uh, but the stunning extremes of human performance can and have been fueled by plant-exclusive diets. I think that lays to rest the notion that populates, you know, pop culture and, and, and folklore. I, I'm inclined to remember the Disney movie, Beauty and the Beast, and the song that Gaston sings about getting so big and strong by eating five dozen eggs. I, you know, that's what we've been handed. And Arnold in a movie with Sly Stallone saying, you hit like a vegetarian, <laughs> right? So that's the myth that's being laid to rest here, and it is a myth. And I think that's really important. There's a lot to debate, lots of further conversation to, to be had. But the movie did contribute that. And, you know, again, I, I think Scott's words about stewardship were absolutely beautiful. So amen to that. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been an absolutely fantastic panel and uh, so much information from um, from the last two hours we've been going. Um, this session is recorded. If you go to my bio, there's a link to the um, audio recording, which will be uh, posted later today. And I shall post some of the links on Twitter tomorrow. And just want to finish with a summary that we're all putting forward, which is a plant-predominant diet, um, not alienating people or any particular types of diet, but at population level, trying to encourage more people to add, make small changes and shift towards adding more plants rather than focus on a small number of people um, making dramatic changes and uh, looking at both the health and environmental aspects of our diets. It's been an absolutely fantastic room um, and thank you all again to the panel and thanks to the audience for some great questions. We'd love to have you back as well, um, Jeff, David, Scott and Adam. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Have a great evening. Bye. Thank you. Bye.